1: You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations.
0: Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Craig Mazin. Craig earned two Emmy Awards in 2019 for his work on the HBO limited series Chernobyl, for which he was writer and creator. He's also written and or directed numerous films and TV shows, including the Scary Movie franchise, The Hangover Parts 2 and 3. He has some upcoming work on the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and now the new HBO series The Last of Us, which premieres January 15 on HBO and HBO Max, and it's based on the very popular video game also called The Last of Us. Craig, you've got a lot going on. Welcome to the show.
1: Uh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I do sound busy when you say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, last night I was just working on a puzzle. Not really yeah, not working
0: at all. Well, you've got a lot of range. You can you can handle the uh, the busy times and the down times. Yeah, but, uh, I love your cocktail choice for the show, the old fashioned. And if anyone deserves to settle into a to an old fashioned and relax a bit, it's you. So I'll I'll get going on that.
1: Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I that's my that's my go to. It's it's my favorite. I um. I don't know. Uh, do you drink Old Fashions? Is that uh,
0: ever in your... I was just going to mention my New Year's Eve cocktail number one was an Old Fashioned. I'm usually more yeah. Manhattans and things like that. Mm-hmm. I've got the bitters going in here. There you go. So it's happening. I can see it happening.
1: The, I, over the years, uh, I've come to feel that the key to a Great Old Fashioned is not necessarily the choice of whiskey, because I like it with bourbon. I like it with rye. I like it with all different kinds of brands. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the Ice Cube. It's... You know- I can see you dumping lots of little bits of ice in there.
0: That's going (laughs) into the shaker. You're right. We don't have, so this is a failing of the Sirius XM kitchen. I don't have like the oversized cube. I know
1: that's it's the oversized cube. If you can, and and you can buy some oversized cube makers on Amazon or Sur and make your own. But, uh, I find that that ultimately that's the thing.
0: Otherwise the 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 ice, it melts too fast yeah so uh exactly i think i'm going to rent out a little space in the serious freezer here and get one of those trays you're talking about brilliant now i also i have the orange for the orange rind i didn't go with the uh the cherry i'm not sure if you usually have a cherry
1: fine yeah i i will throw a cherry in there if it's a luxardo otherwise no uh and uh, as far as the orange peel the twist goes uh as whenever you can, that's a great idea. Try and remove as much of the pith as you can.
0: <laughs> I, You know what? You, I, you and I have very compatible drinking habits. Um, Luxardo is the only cherry to use 100%.
1: Yeah. There are, there's Luxardo and then there are mistakes. That's big. By the way, I'm not getting paid by Luxardo for this, I, same. Uh, but if they are li- listening, I think it's Luxardo or it's a mistake is a great slogan.
0: Totally. You're, you're, you know what? I want to get to some of that. Cause I know you're at Disney doing this very sort of thing for films. That's true, I uh, was. <laughs> cheers. cheers. So your early life, you're originally an East coast guy born or, and raised mostly in Staten Island, New Jersey.
1: Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, raised uh, on Staten Island, and was there until I was 13, and then we moved just, you know, across the river to Jersey, yeah. uh, and that's where I went to college, and then pretty much after college, I came out to L.A., so it's basically been, you know, New York or L.A., that's you, my life.
0: You miss the seasons back here, or you've loving the L.A. weather?
1: I do miss the seasons, although having spent uh, well over a year in Canada, I am now... Fine with not seasons again. <laughs> I think would be okay. Because man, I mean, you know, New York's winters aren't nothing. I mean, we uh, we we get some some good ones over there, but not like that. Uh, that's that's another level.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that that's kind of extreme. A little, you know, seeing some leaves fall—that's nice. But you don't want to be down in subarctic uh, temperatures. Uh,
1: and you are. I mean, we hit minus twenty on it on a particular day. I've never felt that in my life. That was—it's
0: mm. hard to breathe. A deep inhale actually hurts. Yeah. You really, you just got to, uh, you have to prepare
1: if you're going to go outside. It's like a 20 minute preparation process.
0: Yeah. So you're a high academic achiever. You were, you were modest to just mention that you went to school in the state of New Jersey, but Princeton undergrad. And I've always wondered in Hollywood, I've heard of, you know, these alumni networks at particular schools are stronger than others. And I know there's sort of a group of Harvard folks that sort of stick together. Is there there like a Princeton cabal of alums out in Hollywood? No,
1: no, if I had known that I wanted to go into the entertainment business, I, I'm not sure I would have chosen Princeton. Uh, Princeton uh, seems to exceed when it comes to supplying the uh, financial industry uh, with people, the legal industry, politics, um, and business. I, um, But not Harvard yeah, Harvard. yeah, Harvard's amazing. I mean, that whole kind of system from Uh, The Lampoon into The Simpsons is kind of notorious and storied. Mm -hmm. And I have tons of friends out here who went to Harvard. Uh, But yeah, Princeton, uh, there is no pipeline. I
0: had no help. So your route was to go to Disney. In the mid-90s, you were a marketing executive for Disney. And you were writing and producing campaigns for films, which is fascinating to me because I have a good friend who's a very successful novelist. And one of his tricks before he starts a new novel is to sit down and spend an afternoon watching dozens and dozens of campaigns for movies and trailers because it gets him in the mode of the fast start. You know, you got to grab these folks in a short amount of time, draw them, make them interested in his case, reading the rest of the book. Did your work at Disney doing this inform your approach to storytelling?
1: It did slightly. Um, I, I do remember that there were movies that were a challenge to market because they uh they had something fairly subtle going on in terms of plot that was hard to describe or encapsulate at all um and there were also sometimes movies that were hard to do often oh, and sometimes there were movies that were hard to do because um they had great plots they had great hooks but there was no one moment visually or with a single line that would Really punch you in the face, and so over the years, I whatever I was working on, I would stop at some point and say, "Okay, now if I had to <laughs> come up with a trailer for this thing, have I given the trailer people enough? You know, I we kind of think about them and make sure that they were taken care of, um, so that when it does come time to to sell the thing, people have a general sense of what it is. It's it's um, you know, it doesn't help if you make something that you love and no one sees it.
0: Right, right." Well, I also want to get your thoughts on the connection between writing and directing, and you're, you're in a great position to, to talk about this because you've been a writer while another has directed your writing in numerous films. You've been the director that for something that another person wrote in the specials, and you've been both writer and director on Superhero Movie. Can, yeah. you, can you talk about the synergies between these two roles in the final expression of the film? Is it, is it easier to do both?
1: Well, it wasn't easy for me uh, in film because the circumstances that I had were really difficult on both of those movies. And the first one was an independent film. We had, I think it was three weeks to prep it and three weeks to shoot it. Uh, and we did it for yeah, not even a shoestring, half a shoestring, I think. Um, and it was just really hard um, under those circumstances. And then the next one I did was... For Bob Weinstein, who is a notoriously difficult man, and he was uh, incredibly difficult then, and again very challenging to kind of. It was mostly like instead of bringing a vision to life, it was mostly hanging on, you know, and trying to survive. Um, so I don't think I really integrated the jobs very well until I directed on this show, um, where I was able to direct my own stuff with support and tremendous talent around me and love and uh and that was wonderful but also show running is a really interesting it's a way of synthesizing the writing and directing without necessarily having to direct because you you are doing the final edit you're basically in charge of the show you're casting you're making all so many of the decisions that directors and in, in features make yeah um So it, it, in some regard, a showrunner is also kind of the meta director of everything. Yeah. Um, As I've gone on and done more and more, I'm more and more comfortable with that. I think that um, I guess I'm the best interpreter of my own writing, Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. Uh, Although... Johan ranked did an f- amazing job on Trump. <laughs> like he's, if, you know, if Johan wants to direct something, I always, am like, I'm happy to step aside and let him do it. He's yeah. incredible.
0: It's interesting you say that in terms of the sort of meta director or showrunner as compared to the old, you know, the eighties blockbuster feature film type things. Because one of the transitions I've, I've noticed here is, you know, if you go back to the the era of the first Top Gun, you know, the mid eighties, the director is really the captain of the ship. And whoever wrote the screenplay might be layers away from what actually arrives on the screen. These days, it's a little different. And the captain of the ship seems to come more from the writing side rather than the directing side. Take Game of Thrones or stuff like Dennis yeah. Lehane's done as the, as the showrunner. You know, the, the, on Game of Thrones, it's the writers who are the captain of the ship. Episode to episode, the director changes. But the people really driving it are, are on the writing side as opposed to in the 80s. It was the Spielbergs and, the, you know, the writers were sort of more in the background.
1: Well, and I think that's that's always been the case uh, for features versus television. And in, in television, the writers always been in charge, um, because as you point out, there's a continuity of episodes, and the director has always had primacy in features, and the writer has always had primacy in television. And for a long time, I think the quality gap was such that people felt that inherently it was probably a better idea to have directors in charge because features tended to be better than television in the old days of the three networks. There were, it's not that there weren't terrific television shows, but there were also just sort of, you know, there was, there, people forget, but culturally growing up in the seventies and eighties, all we heard as children was that TV was quote, rotting your brain. That was, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was what they, nobody said movies rot your brain, but television rotted your brain. <laughs> That's how low we held television in cultural regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, ever since the television renaissance which i think probably we can all point to the sopranos as being the real beginning of i guess this this new golden age of television yeah i think the quality on television has it often surpassed the quality in, in feature films uh the pandemic obviously tried its best to hasten the demise of feature films and happily failed
0: mm-hmm.
1: but i think part of what's happening now uh is the rise of a different kind of auteur, which is, and I know this is gonna sound crazy, but the author is the auteur. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Isn't that wild? I just, I love that we use the word, a French word for author to describe people that don't write. Yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe it's probably better that we use it to describe people who do write. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think that it's uh, there is this new kind of auteur that's happening in television and it's the it's the showrunner and the showrunner, particularly of, you know, really interesting and challenging work across every streamer and platform. I mean, it's not just obviously HBO is known for it. And I'm thrilled that I'm a part of their their business because they're they are the top of the heap as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but yeah. I totally, stuff everywhere.
0: I totally agree with your comment on The Sopranos being sort of a, a point in time we can, we can identify as ushering in a new era. And I watched it when it was first out and I rewatched it just a year ago and it totally holds up in a way oh, that yeah. in 1996, if you tried to watch a show from 1970, it would not hold up. But The Sopranos is just excellent. And it's a good segue into Chernobyl because... You know, it's a new format. It's an it's an ability to do a show in a different way that you really couldn't do back in the '60s or '70s. And I love the limited series format. It's just amazing. Yeah. And what you did with Chernobyl was I, I watched. I was obsessed with it when it was first out. It was when it was getting all the buzz. It was a great, great show. And uh, I like that format in a way. You know, the open ended series. Sometimes that can has a tendency to go on too long and how do you end it? it in a 90 minute feature sometimes you can't do everything that should be done. Like I think if the Godfather were made today, you know these long okay. movies it, it might be a limited series.
1: <laughs> oh no question. Um, and people can argue about the relative merits of that, but i I couldn't agree more that's in terms of business reality that's exactly what would happen. For me, I remember, um, reading about Chernobyl, and right around that time I started reading it, the rise of the, or I guess the emergence of the limited series came into view. Um, in uh, Not very long ago, either you were making a movie or you were making a television series that had, I don't know, somewhere between 16 and 26 episodes a year, and... Uh, and and if it were a television show, it was meant to go on forever. Limited series, we used, you know we called them miniseries when I was a kid, and right. those were for basically garbage like biopics about you know or true crime stories, and they were bad, and they were on CBS. It was a CBS miniseries. I mean, you had like great ones like Roots,
0: yeah, uh, and then Me, you had you know the, uh, the show one, one, and
1: then you had these like most of them were terrible, but. <laughs> um, I thought, okay, here's a story that I know I can tell. I cannot tell it as a movie and it doesn't go on. So what is it? It's five episodes and suddenly there was a format for five episodes, which just, was kind of amazing. Um, yeah. And, and now story. it seems like it's the prevailing format.
0: It, it's a particularly great format for documentaries or, or docudramas. And I wanted to ask you about that too, because it seems like with these things, there's on the TV side. There's a real spectrum, a wide spectrum of responsibility, like journalistic responsibility with film. You know, on the book side, it's very clear. You have narrative nonfiction, where I think Eric Larson is probably the best working. And he has a policy that anything that's in quotations, there's no invented dialogue. Anything in quotations, he sources back. And the whole book, you know, he's a journalist by trade. So the whole book is well-researched and factual. You had a very high bar, I think, for responsibility and truth-telling in Chernobyl, but- on the TV side, there is a range, and I think you know one of the obvious. You know, the Crown doesn't put it out so itself out there to be documentary, right. but people—it's so close, people are still living that people watch it and they think, "Oh my God, the Queen did what?" You know, and it's not necessarily right. true, but it's it's somewhat. Mis- and there are other examples, for example, like uh, Leaving Neverland, the the Michael Jackson documentary was covering. You know, put these two guys out there who made le- leveled many accusations against Michael Jackson. And I I felt like it was somewhat misleading because if 20 minutes of research shows that these guys have been, you know, their stories have switched around a bit, they've told some lies, but none of that's in there. And yet it's sort of held out to be a documentary and it didn't really have a lot of responsibility from a journalistic standpoint.
1: Well, documentaries have always engaged in a bit of narrative sleight of hand. Uh, Any documentary is the result not not only of footage gathering of real people and real events and file footage from news stories, but it's also a narrative. It's also an arrangement. Mm-hmm. Documentaries are created in, in editing rooms. And I think any good documentarian will tell you that a massive part of what they do is creating a narrative. So then it really does come down to the responsibility of, of the documentarian. Where's their heart? Are they acting in good faith? For docudrama, uh, you're right to say that there's this sliding scale. And it was important to us, especially because we were telling a story about the danger of narrative mm-hmm. that we try and he as, po- as close as possible to facts and reality and where we had to adjust or change because you're adapting years into hours. We want to do to come clean about it. So we, you know, we made that podcast that was basically designed to let people know what we changed and why, and what was exactly the same and why, mm-hmm. but it was an interesting process. HBO is very thorough in their fact checking. Um, I had basically annotate every script and go through all of it. And then they had an independent fact checker go through everything. Mm-hmm. And I had to back stuff up and provide sources. And um, it was, it was thorough. It really, I, I would definitely say that.
0: It really was. And you could tell, and, and you know, there's, there are people out there like Ken Burns who are doing a thorough job on that stuff. You watch something by Ken Burns or by you, and you know, there's, there's a high level of respect and and sort of accuracy and and uh, that, but you know on on the flip side there's like the Harry and Meghan thing where they were using uh, images from crowd shots that were not they weren't even there there was it just seemed a lot of sort of deception involved with that.
1: Well, that's the reality TVification of of content. Um, people feel like well, there's this genre that uses the word reality that has nothing to do with reality is it is basically professional wrestling i think uh it's presented (laughs) as reality but everybody's winking to each other because of course it's not Mm -hmm. and so they don't have a problem showing one thing or another and faking it all and um people do this in i mean i can't how many times they've caught political campaigns showing pictures of real people with their real thoughts, and someone's like, that's a stock photo, yeah, it's not even yeah. a person. Now they have AI just generating fake faces. Uh, we, I guess, absorb a lot of this is just part of, it's just part of it. I th- At least people understand that they're being, you know, fooled, um, hopefully, hopefully, most people understand. They're being
0: fooled. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to the people running around thinking the crown is, is you know, historically 100% accurate, you know?
1: Yeah, it's it's not a hundred percent accurate, and then I hope that nobody thinks it is. Um, that's I don't think that's what its purpose is. You know, exactly. I, I, at least yeah. if it's that, watched and enjoyed it. It seems like it's so going for something else.
0: But it, exactly. And in their defense, they're not putting itself out there as like, hey, we are right. telling the tale. You know, we're, we're, we're a show. You know, inspired yeah, by. But
1: it. Also, yeah, and they're getting to the dramatic essence and the points of interest that are relevant to us now it's that that part of it is interesting yeah, but
0: yeah i really yeah, enjoy in, the craft uh,
1: it's a tricky world out there trying to figure out what's real and what's not
0: totally so before we get into the last of us i want to talk a little pirates and a little process on parts of the caribbean i read that you are doing some writing for an upcoming installment of the franchise
1: yeah what i've done is i've uh, written a story for the movie with ted Elliott who uh, was one of the writers of the original first three films and also wrote Shrek and the animated movie Aladdin. So he's, he knows a little bit of something about screenwriting and, um, and to me, Ted kind of, it contains within him the most like the essence of pirates of the Caribbean, his sense of humor, his weirdness, his, the way he his plots all twist and turn and everyone is, backstabbing and creating alliances that's all ted's great thing and so he and i mapped out a a full treatment full story for a new pirates movie and then he wrote a terrific script while I was up in Canada, freezing, <laughs> and um, they they definitely seem very interested in making it. Well,
0: you know. So, would you get a casting update? I heard The Rock is now attached to this. Does that? Does that? What does that do to your work? If he, if that's a true story, is The Rock actually uh, joining the I, I franchise? Seen <laughs> oh, I mean, no, okay, he's cool. <laughs> maybe I've got.
1: I love The Rock. Dwayne's maybe I, maybe awesome I was now. reading the
0: Onion or something. I thought The Rock was coming in.
1: Uh, it, it may be. I, I haven't looked at it. I, I don't. Um, I've been so. Uh, buried in finishing the Last of Us, that I people are like, "Hey, crazy about the whole Speaker of the House thing," and I'm like, "I, huh?" <laughs> I'm in a very strange bubble right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. You got if you go on Twitter for five minutes, you will see that the, that that whole Congress thing is going going nuts. So, The Last great. of Us, great. Sec- so, let's get into what you're mainly into. Um, so, listeners <laughs> know, The Last of Us is set 20 years after the collapse of civilization. Uh, the trailers look awesome. I am I am dying to see this. It's about a journey across a post-apocalyptic America. Among other stars, there is Pedro Pascal, who I loved in Narcos and Game of Thrones. The story reminds me a little bit of Cormac McCarthy's uh, Pulitzer winner, right. The Road, which is just a terrific yeah. book. So, Craig, you have called this the greatest story ever told in video games. And I'm not much of a gamer. My last sort of gaming thing was like 1980 with Atari Missile Command. So can you talk a bit about character development and story coming out of uh, video games?
1: Sure. And, you know, I'll reiterate that it's certainly my opinion that it's the great story. I mean, I've I've been playing video games uh, since the late 70s, and I play pretty much every major release, and I love so many games. But there was always something about The Last of Us that set it apart, and that was how much it invested in this very subtle, um, very real and important story between this broken man and this lost and lonely girl. And what I loved about it was that it made me feel things in a fairly profound way. And I'd never had that experience quite like that playing video games. Um, That's not to say that video games hadn't made me feel things or hadn't been provocative or thoughtful because so many of them are, but that one was seemingly on a different level, at least for me. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about it, maybe more than anything. And I remember saying this to Neil Druckmann when we first sat down together was that it was a kind of a love story, except the villain was love that the problem that the story presented was that love is our greatest asset. It inspires us to do our our greatest things, but it also is behind all the bad stuff. It's behind it's behind a lot of our fears and our tribalisms and our defensiveness, and it also leads us to very strange conclusions. Like, for instance, my one child's life is worth twenty other children's lives. Mm-hmm. That's something that love does to people that I don't think they quite understand <laughs> until they're put in terrible situations, and I love the way the story just explored the subtleties of that, and that's interesting Here we are with intelligent
0: love it love is what it's uh, makes us make r- irrational decisions. this is why the computers are going to take over you know we're making irrational decisions based on love, which yeah, we are yeah, it's true. So how did you identify this as a project initially? And I normally we're thinking about book to film, but this is game to film. How did, how did you hook into this one for at first?
1: Well, I, you know, I've been thinking about it for a long time. The Last of Us as a video game is probably, I can't think of an easier video game to adapt into television because it was so narrative heavy.
0: So and, was it was your first exposure um, to it as a gamer. You were playing the game. Or someone brought this to you as a potential project
1: oh no i i played the game when it came out in 2013 yeah. and um played it multiple times um and it just seemed like it was a natural you know it, it was it, like i say to neil it was like there's a, a television show screaming inside to get out you know mm-hmm. uh, you could just feel it like it just seemed like i could do it but the problem was neil was doing it he was trying to adapt it as a film <laughs> yeah which i thought was folly and told him as much <laughs> Just, so hbo uh, greenlit this big and also the the joy of the stories in the journey the joy is following these two characters and seeing how they change each other and when you try and shrink that kind of thing down into you know two hours what you end up with mostly is plot and yeah. so eventually uh you know when he and i sat down he he saw the wisdom of it and off we went
0: we we uh I want to get a few things in before we run out of time, but I know this was greenlit by HBO in November of 2020. So can you take us through, you know, sort of quickly what the development path of this was over this two plus years to get it from there to here?
1: Uh, A ton of writing. One of the things that Neil and I did right away was just talk through everything and try and lay the whole story of the season out for ourselves, all the episodes, everything inside of each just episode. Quick, quick question. On that. Is I, Neil,
0: I, so Neil's the game creator. Has he ever written for TV or film before? Or, or has he mainly been a game no, guy? He's been solely a game
1: guy. I mean, other than trying to work on the movie for The Last of Us, which, mm-hmm. you know, like I told him was was uh, just impossible. It was quixotic. Um, so we broke all the story together. And then I wrote it all into this big, we call it a Bible. It was like 180 pages Gave that over to HBO. I like to do that because it helps me know what I'm supposed to write every day. It helps everybody else know what we're going to write. There are no huge surprises in that regard. They never get to a script and go, wait, what? And then we wrote. Um, so we wrote a, uh, a couple of scripts together. He wrote one script. I wrote all the other ones because, um, you know, he's also running this video game company over there. And this is my only job. Um, And while we wrote, we also started to prep and then we shot. And while we were shooting, we were prepping and I was writing and it just. I mean, I was doing every possible job. Mm -hmm. There was one day where I remember I worked on nine different episodes in different ways, either writing, prepping, shooting, editing, looking at visual effects, casting. It was insane. And it was insane like that for, you know, about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I it, you know, I, I definitely broke me down a few times, but I, I just want to do it again. I, I, I loved it.
0: Oh, that's I awesome. That's it. It your baby is is coming to life here on January 15th. So quick. All right. So we're onto the lightning round of quick questions to, to wrap up your favorite book as a kid, as
1: a kid. Oh man. Um, probably Shogun.
0: Nice. Nice. Clavel, the, right? James uh, Clavel. The,
1: yeah, the, exactly. I saw the the uh, miniseries and then I read the book. I love that
0: book. Yeah. So, you, miniseries first, then book. Exactly. Yep. Favorite movie as a kid? I suppose this could be the same answer, maybe. Oh, uh, Raiders. Raiders. There we go. Nice. I love that. I remember the, when someone told me to look for the piling driving out of the bottom of the car that made it flip i was obsessed with trying to find that and freeze it on my vhf thing
1: yeah and the, the log that comes out yeah.
0: yeah so in no particular order five best tv shows ever
1: oh my god uh breaking bad sopranos
0: um Let's see. Oh man, you really got me here. You can go um, over if you. Uh, yeah, I know you don't want to offend anyone. This is like these are your your buddies, so I don't want to.
1: Oh, oh Game of Thrones.
0: Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. For yeah. sure.
1: Um, I want to do. Oh, Mash.
0: Mash was amazing. Yeah. Amazing.
1: And and I would also say Taxi.
0: Wow. Okay, yeah. I I watched some of I, that growing up too. That because it was those were all yeah. like the reruns at seven p.m. that I grew up watching. You know, in the evenings. Yeah.
1: Taxi is incredible.
0: We've got good overlap there. I, I would add like uh, Mad Men and a couple others, but that that's great. I, Breaking Bad was amazing. Best pilot ever. I was obsessed. As soon as I saw the pilot, I was like, I'm, I'm in. There's
1: Vince Gilligan and then there's the rest of us.
0: <laughs> Best film fest- festival you've been to or, or most fun film festival to attend?
1: Oh, um, so uh, often, uh, almost every year, I'll go to the Austin Screenwriting Conference and Film Festival, which is held at the end of October, and it's a very writer centered gathering of people. And I've always had a great time there. and They always have a really interesting selection of films.
0: How about the craziest casting story you've been ever been involved with? You know, there's that sort of speaking of Indiana Jones. There's that funny one of you know it was going to be Tom Selleck, but then he had a conflict right. with Magna Pi, so it's Indiana. It's uh, Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones. Any, any crazy uh, casting stories?
1: Yeah, there, there are some crazy ones. Although the one that comes to mind immediately is I, um, occasionally help out my friend, Rob McAlaney on his show mythic quest, which is on Apple. And it's fantastic. And for the first episode of the second season, they had this animated opening and they needed somebody with like a great voice to narrate it. And he called me because they like, they were in trouble and they had basically like, it, we have to figure this out today. And so we tossed a few names, and then I was like, What about Anthony Hopkins? He's like, That would be great. So I called my lawyer who represents Anthony Hopkins. And I think, honestly, like three hours later, Anthony Hopkins had received the thing, read it, and then it went into the show. So sometimes, like, it's sometimes either yeah. incredibly slow or incredibly fast.
0: <laughs> that's great. It's, yeah, it either draws you in or it's all resistance. That's great. Yeah. Um, last question, one piece of good advice for the listeners on any topic it could be life, writing, filmmaking. Mm. Uh,
1: here's a bit of advice. I like to give to people who are expecting a baby for the first time. Um, because the, you know, I've, my kids are now grown 21 and, and 18, but I have a lot of friends who are having babies and I always make sure to give them this advice because I wish somebody had given it to me, uh, for the first 12 weeks. Of your baby's life that baby will suck <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> it gives you nothing it doesn't it doesn't care about you it doesn't smile doesn't know you're there there's no love you will not enjoy your baby your baby stinks for 12 weeks and then around the 12th week suddenly something happens in the brain it smiles at you and then you know what love is for the first time
0: oh that's great i love it you, you clearly are a good dad i would say there were a couple of shining moments like that like the first smile for me but i don't think i was a good dad until the kids were like three or four Years old. Yeah, right? so
1: they won't remember anything before that. It's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, I have a feeling you will soon be awash in Emmys again. I'm very excited oh, for course. the for the uh, premiere of The Last of Us on January 15 HBO, HBO Max. And what a pleasure! Thank you so much. Thank you, Doug. It was a real treat. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.